0: Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details.
1: Welcome to the History of the Cold War podcast, episode 34, The Soviet Gulag. I'm your host, Jeff Hogue. So in today's episode, we're going to examine the Soviet gulag system that existed in the Soviet Union during the opening stages of the Cold War. However, I do want to warn you that unfortunately, this episode will be covering some unfortunate and at times disturbing aspects of prison life. As always, forgive me for any mispronunciations. The gulag was a vast network of jails, prisons, work camps, and industrial colonies spread out over the immense stretches of the Soviet Union from the Arctic Circle to the grasslands of Central Asia, from Murmansk to Vladivostok. The Gulag became an essential part of the Soviet economy in the early Cold War. The Gulag produced a third of the Soviet Union's gold, much of its timber and coal, a great deal of other raw materials and industrial goods. During the Gulag's existence, some 476 camps were built, with anywhere from a few hundred to thousands of workers. Hundreds of other temporary camps were built as well across the Soviet Union that facilitated the construction of roads, canals, and other infrastructure projects. Many of the camps that were constructed in the early 1920s continued to operate into the late 1980s, whereas others lasted only a few months. At its height in the early 1950s, two out of every 100 workers in the Soviet Union worked in the gulag system. Inmates worked in almost every industry, from logging and mining, to construction, factory work, farming, and aircraft design. Some two-thirds worked in construction, and one in five Soviet construction workers were gulag inmates. The gulag had its own laws, customs, and culture, with its own morality and even slang, apart from the wider Soviet society. Concentration camps and mass incarceration was not something invented by the Soviet Union. Spain and Cuba constructed the first modern concentration camp uh, to fight the insurgency there in 1895. The British used concentration camps to crush the Boer in South Africa by arresting the Boer civilian population. The Germans used concentration camps in Southwest Africa to crush the inhabitants there in 1904. Hermann Göring's father, Dr. Heinrich Göring, established the camps there. His son, Hermann Göring, would of course go on to open the first concentration camps in Nazi Germany. It was also in Africa where German scientists carried out some of their first experiments on people and two of Dr. Mengele's teachers carried out research there. The British as well would use concentration camps during the Cold War to help crush the Mau Mau insurgency in Kenya. Many compare the Gulag with concentration camps of the Third Reich, but these two systems were very different. The Gulag lasted far longer and went through many changes in contrast to the short, brutal history of the Nazi concentration camps. The Gulag also had a wide variety of camps, uh, uh, from comfortable camps built for scientists to unspeakable uranium mines. The Nazi system, in contrast, had far less diversity in the types of camps. Being sent to the gulag wasn't a virtual death sentence like those being sent to the Nazi death camps. Jews in the Nazi death camps could not change their status, whereas inmates in the gulag could ele- elevate themselves and become guards. In the reverse, guards in the gulag could and did sometimes become inmates in a proverbial game of shoots and ladders. Millions, however, did die in the gulag because of gross inefficiencies and neglect. Nevertheless, the Soviets never practiced the form of mass extermination that was practiced by the Nazis during the height of the Holocaust. The gulag with its political inmates were very different, though, from other prisons we might be familiar with. People were arrested not just for what they had done, but for who they were. They were classified as enemies of the people. Some were genuine opponents of the Soviet regime, like anarchists, but some were various nationalities that Stalin deemed a threat to the Soviet Union, like Ukrainians, Balts, Poles, Chechens, Germans, and many others. The Soviets in these early days of the regime believed that political prisoners were harder to reform than common criminals who had become so because of socioeconomic reasons, which they believed would ultimately be corrected with the rise of a socialist society. Political criminals were viewed as foreign agents and saboteurs blamed for the challenges and setbacks in the Soviet Union. They were dehumanized and called vermin and pollution by both Lenin and later Stalin. Often before they were arrested, people were fired and humiliated by their friends and colleagues in public meetings. They would be expelled from the party, divorced by their spouse, and denounced by their children. The numbers of political prisoners in the camps fluctuated over the years. Between 1937 and 1938, 12 to 18 percent of the prisoners were political. During the war, the number hovered around 30 to 40 percent. After the war and Stalin's general amnesty for common criminals, that number rose to about 60 percent. The vast majority of those who who did pass through the gulag system in the 1930s and the 1940s were common criminals and more likely to be urban workers and peasants. The vast majority of political prisoners were not political dissidents, but people who had made mistakes by saying a joke about Stalin or were framed by the state for having some type of foreign connection. Many of the common criminals we wouldn't consider to be criminals in most democratic societies either. Many were arrested for showing up to work uh, late twice at a factory job. This was a common crime during the war, and you could be sentenced to up to five years for showing up to work late. Even for minor crimes like stealing boots, a Soviet citizen could be sentenced to 16 years in prison. Gulag prisoners were excommunicated from Soviet society and were strictly forbidden from referring to one another as comrade. If you were caught doing so, it would result in a harsh beating. Portraits of Stalin, which were omnipresent in the Soviet Union, were never appeared in the camps. Turnover in the camps was high, although arrests for most of the Stalinist period were also high, so were releases. Prisoners were freed upon completing their sentences. During the Great Patriotic War, many joined the Red Army. Thousands of others were pardoned in mass amnesties. As a result, the total number of prisoners hovered around 2 million during most of the Stalinist era. Before the war, the Soviet population was about 170 million people, so roughly 1.2% of the Soviet population was in the Gulag. In contrast, the current U.S. prison population is about 2%, according to the Bureau of Justice Statistics. Nevertheless, some 18 million in the Soviet society had at one point or another been incarcerated, with another 6 million who had been exiled to remote areas of the Soviet Union. In contrast, for the latest U.S. numbers I could find, the number is 5.6 million as of 2001, again from the Bureau of Justice Statistics. The United States lacks any comparable exile population. The Gulag, like many Soviet institutions, had its origins in Tsarist Russia and the forced labor brigades that operated in Siberia in the 17th through the 19th centuries. Nor was slave labor new to Russia. Peter the Great had used hundreds of thousands of serfs and prisoners to build St. Petersburg, of which an estimated 30,000 died. During the Russian Revolution in 1917, Lenin and the Bolsheviks had expressed interest in arresting their political opponents and establishing special prisons for them, and by 1921, 84 such camps were in operation. In the early days of the regime, most of those arrested as enemies of the people were merchants, gamblers, autocrats, priests, czarist supporters, white Russians, anarchists, social revolutionaries, and men- Mensheviks. Typically, these people still received trials and were sent to Tsarist-era prisons and jails. These jails, though, quickly became overcrowded and other buildings were requisitioned, like churches, to hold the prisoners. To handle this overflow and deal with these prisoners, the Cheka was assigned the task of establishing special camps for the political criminals. However, beyond creating these early camps, no one knew what their purpose was or should be. To carry out labor, re-education, the Soviet elite were not in agreement. The camps had an eight-hour working day, and family visits were allowed, but only on holidays. Prisoners attempting to escape would, be, would have their original sentence multiplied by 10, and a second attempt would be punished by death. The camps, in theory, were supposed to be self-financing, but very few were. However, the prison system was clearly divided into two different systems, one for political prisoners and one for common criminals. What became the NKVD and eventually the KGB ran the special camps with political prisoners. These prisoners were more difficult to control, though. Many of them, like the anarchists and social revolutionaries, had spent years in Tsarist prison and knew how to fight back with hunger strikes or even riots and were used to the privileges granted them uh, as political prisoners under the Tsar. They also had friends in the West they could smuggle notes to to publish their stories in order to fight a PR war with the Soviets. The Soviets, still hoping the revolution could spread, didn't want the progress of communism slowed by bad press. The Cheka fought back by exiling these difficult prisoners to distant Siberia, making it more difficult for them to communicate with their contacts in the West, cranking down in some camps and in other camps giving in. These tactics more or less all failed, though. In 1923, a new prison complex on the island chain of Slovetsky was constructed to deal with the issue uh, in the White Sea. The island chain had been used since Tsarist times to house enemies of the Tsar and was populated by monks. By 1925, some 6,000 inmates were, were interned on the islands, living in converted monasteries in primitive conditions. The men slept on large plank beds, and the air was uh, alive with clouds of mosquitoes. The prisoners w- worked cutting down trees with, n- with no breaks and little food. All over the islands, diseases broke out, such as the, as a result of overwork poor hygiene, and poor nutrition, resulting in the deaths of a quarter of the population by 1926. Prisoners were also subjected to sadism and pointless torture, something that became rare later on during the gulag system. Authorities would force inmates to jump off bridges into water anytime they yelled dolphin. Other inmates were stripped naked and tied to trees to be eaten alive by mosquitoes. When the guards were forbidden to arbitrarily shoot uh, inmates, they arranged for accidents to happen, as inmates would often fall down steps or off bell towers. However, most of the camps, despite the best efforts of some, remained a cost to the state. Anrovich Frenkel, a former prisoner who rose up the ranks to become a commander at Slavitsky, uh, implemented a plan to feed prisoners according to the quality of their work. This system quickly weeded out the weaker workers with deadly consequences. He divided his workers into three types, those capable of heavy work, those capable of light work, and invalids. The titles are self-explanatory, with heavy workers being fed the most and invalids fed the least, if at all. Strong workers grew stronger, weak prisoners grew weaker, until they eventually became ill or died. Rural peasants tended to do better as they were used to heavy physical labor, like digging pitch and cutting down trees whereas urban workers suffered more as they were unfamiliar with harsh physical labor. Prinko also started the practice of outsourcing convict labor to the mainland for building roads and clear-cutting forests, undercutting civilian firms. Everything that was unrelated to economic development, like re-education and camp newspapers, slowly disappeared. Outsourcing convict labor did have its own issues, though, namely the, the greater possibility of escape. When possible, Soviet authorities tried to place production facilities near the gulag, but this in itself proved to be expensive. By 1927, some 30,000 inmates were in these special camps, mostly Slovatsky, and the camps employed about 1,000 people. Random violence and cruelty by guards also began to decline as Moscow and the OGPU started to crack down on ill-treatment of prisoners and even arrested and executed 19 guards at Slavitsky in 1930. Moreover, by 1930, the early political prisoners like the socialist revolutionaries and anarchists had been broken through a combination of prolonged violent crackdowns and greater isolation, coupled with a PR campaign by the Soviet authorities to drown out what later letters made it out and also to attack them as fake reports. The nature and role of the camps also began to change with Stalin coming to power in the Soviet Union. Stalin saw the Soviet prisoner population as a labor resource that could be utilized in the industrialization of the Soviet Union. He took a deep personal interest in the camps and exerted an enormous influence on their development. Throughout his life, he demanded detailed information on the camps and the inmates they held, how productive they were, how many prisoners were held there, and who was held there. To ensure that his, commanders were, his commands were carried out, he would often send inspection teams, even to the most remote camps, on the arctic circle and pacific coast camp bosses were often called to moscow as well to report to stalin personally about the operation of their camps he personally read and sometimes commented upon petitions for release written by to him by prisoners or their wives writing back to them in a word or two quote keep him at work close quote or release at that at the time the soviet union had a labor crisis in the far north of the country Moreover, to meet the new five-year plan, the Soviet Union would need vast quantities of coal, gas, oil, and timber, much of which was located in the distant and isolated Arctic Circle, Siberia, and the remote steppes of Kazakhstan. Gold was another precious resource needed to buy machinery from the west, which was located in underdeveloped Kulma, a region of Northeast Asia. Temperatures there regularly fell below 49 degrees Fahrenheit. To reach the camps, prisoners had to travel by train across the vast Russian landscape, sometimes a three-month trip. They made the rest of the trip by boat, traveling past Japan. Of the 16,000 prisoners who traveled to Koma the first year, only 9,928 made it there alive. But conditions there were not as bad as you might imagine in the beginning. The camp commandant provided the prisoners with a cinema, libraries, and nice dining halls, and released some prisoners early for good work. He even paid his prisoners regular salaries. However, not meeting quota would see you sent to one of the smaller outlying camps, where the conditions were worse and the death rates even higher. Rezin, the camp commandant, saw his task as not punishing and or torturing prisoners, but in delivering as much gold as possible to Moscow, and he knew that dead or ill workers wouldn't be able to produce gold. Therefore, he believed that workers had to be well-fed and warm to dig for gold. The men were given warm clothing and fed well. When the temperatures fell below minus 60, no work was allowed. By 1932, some 10,000 prisoners were at work in the region, with an additional 3,000 free workers. The prisoners not only built the gold mines in the region, but they built the port city of Magden and the region's major highway. By 1936, the city had some 15,000 inhabitants. In 1929, the traditional prison system was merged with the special camps of the OGPU or the future KGB and placed under the control of the OGPUP with about 300,000 inmates. The OGUP reorganized the system of special camps and renamed it the Corrective Labor Camps and Labor Settlements. Eventually, this was shortened to Main Camp Administration or its Russian acronym, GULAG. The prison population had also changed and began to grow exp- exponentially once again. Over 2 million peasants were arrested and exiled between 1930 and 1933 as Russian peasants and Ukrainians resisted Stalin's forced collectivization, with about 100,000 ending up in the Gulag arrested for being class enemies or wealthy Kulak farmers. The rest were exiled to Siberia and Kazakhstan and forbidden to return home. With starvation gripping the countryside Gleaners or women who stole often just a handful of leftover grain were also arrested as political prisoners. Others were convicted of stealing apples or potatoes and received sentences of up to 10 years. Because of this, peasants became a large portion of the population of the Gulag in the 1930s and would continue to be so until Stalin's death. In 1934, only some 7% of the Gulag population had a higher education, while 39% had only a primary education. By 1938, that number had fallen to 1%, while 50% had only had a, a primary education. Stalin saw gulag labor as a chance to carry out great engineering feats, and discussions of gulag labor, camps, and projects would fill entire Politburo meetings. Several massive construction projects were undertaken, such as the great steel city built at Medigrosk, or the massive Chlebensky tractor plant. But one of Stalin's favorite projects that utilized gulag labor was the White Sea Canal. The project represented an old Tsarist ambition of linking the White Sea with the Baltic, making it possible for merchants to ship lumber and resources from the Antarctic Circle down to the Baltic to be traded with the West. The canal was a massive undertaking, stretching 141 miles with five dams and 19 locks, with very little economic return on an investment for 20th century Russia. But Stalin wanted a technological triumph, and building the canal would not only cement his name in history, but prove that Marxist-Leninism was delivering on its promise to modernize Russia. As soon as the project began, all the available inmates at Slavinsky were transported to the mainland to build the canal. Some 170,000 prisoners were assigned to the project using primitive tools with no modern machinery, virtually building the canal by hand, using a combination of crude wooden hand tools, horses, and wheelbarrows to remove the dirt. Their living conditions were just as poor. They had to construct their own camps, and many men froze to death in the cold temperatures, or became ill and died. In all, an estimated 25,000 prisoners died. To speed up the work, races were organized between different teams, and work storms were held, or when workers would work 24 or 48 hours in a row. Winners would receive 5 kilos of sugar and 10 kilos of white flour as a prize. The bosses also adopted the practice of forming shock worker gangs or prisoners who had exceeded their quota and were eligible to receive extra food and special privileges like new work and clothes every six months. In the dining halls, they had their own tables with the best food, with banners above them that said, quote, for the best workers, the best food, close quote. Those who didn't meet their quota sat under signs that said, quote, Here they, go, they get the worst food, refusers, loafers, and lazy bones, close quote. Eventually, top performers were released early. For every three days of work at 100% of quota, they received a day off their sentence. And when the canal was finished in August 1933, 12,484 prisoners were released. By the end of the project, the canal was barely navigable at only 12 feet deep, just enough for naval vessels to travel down the canal. The canal was also the only Gulag project to be publicized to the world and the wider Soviet public. In addition to projects like the White Sea Canal, the OGPU over the course of the 1930s became pioneers and explorers of the vast Soviet wilderness as they sought to exploit the many resources of the Soviet Union. They planned and equipped geological expeditions to the frozen tundra of the northern Arctic, the forests of Siberia, and the remote shores of the Pacific. To get these regions and resources, the OGPU had to build roads and train tracks over thousands of miles of remote, empty country. They had to build hundreds of cities and villages to support new camps, to house guards and camp personnel and their families. Many of these explorers and surveyors were themselves prisoners, and they had even helped to build the camps and mines that they would house themselves and other prisoners in the future. Historians debate if Stalin's repression gave birth to the Gulag system, or if Stalin's economic policies of mass industrialization and collectivization created the repression that ultimately fed the Gulag. Most of the Gulag's population was concentrated in remote, underdeveloped regions of the Soviet Union. Many historians argue that even if unintentional, Stalin's impossible requirements in the five-year plan helped to drive the cruelty of collectivization to arrest more people to feed the labor crisis in the far north. Every time they arrested a kulak, they created another slave laborer. They also point to the fact that several well-known mining experts, the Soviet Union's top geologists, and two labor organization experts and one hydraulic engineer just happened to be arrested on the eve of a planned expedition to expand new gold mines and oil fields in the Kolma region. Moreover, in some archival documents, we have found orders from the OPGU to find and arrest 15 to 20,000 prisoners in order to, to find workers to finish the Moscow to Volga Canal. These historians argue that Russia would have never become an industrial society without the Gulag system, and that despite all its horrors, it built modern Russia. Just as American slavery and the intolerable conditions of immigrants to the United States in the 19th and early 20th century had made America an industrial power, the czarist economy with its free market approach in contrast to the Soviet Union had failed to industrialize the the nation. A large prison population also relieved the pressure on the consumer economy and allowed Russia to focus on heavy industry and and development. Moreover, they contend that the vast regions of the far north and the remote Pacific were too harsh and too remote to settle with free labor. The Soviet regime, on the other hand, was less troubled by these factors and had little regard for the lives of the people they sent to open up these regions. Indeed, many of the people exiled to these remote locations were ill prepared. On one occasion in 1933, a group of peasants were dropped off by train in the middle of nowhere in western Siberia to settle a location. The first convoy contained 5,070 people, the second, 1,044, in all, some 6,114 people. They arrived with no food, tools, or seeds to plant new crops. The area was devoid of any settlement, apart from the rail line, that had dropped them off. The snow started to fall that May, and in poor health, no food, and no ability to start a fire, they quickly began to die. After the first day, some 295 died. Food didn't arrive until five days later, and not enough to sustain the colony. Over the course of the next three months, 4,000 of the original 6,000 would die with their survivors having converted to cannibalism, eating the flesh of those who had passed away. Historians contend if arrests were intended to populate the camps, they did a poor job at it. Camp officials seemed to always be caught off guard and swamped by the new flows of prisoners. Nor did the NKVD arrest suitable candidates. Large numbers of women, children, and old men were arrested and shipped to the camps in the far north or Siberia, where they were of little use and a burden on the camp as they could not perform heavy labor. Others point out that during the height of the terror, they were executing hundreds of thousands of able-bodied men who could have been put to work, who were instead being shot and by firing squad or in the head, wasting critical human labor. I also point to the fact that many of the large projects of the Soviet Union were extremely expensive and inefficient and provided very little economic output. The White Sea Canal, a prime example, Many of the tracks that the prisoners built were not used. If anything, the state's access to slave labor made them less strategic in the application of the resources and more wasteful. Many of the projects were rushed with impossible deadlines and shortcuts were taken, only creating more work in the end, and many projects were launched without even cost estimates. Moreover, the gulag killed more Soviet labor than it preserved. Millions of talented and otherwise healthy people died in transport to the camps or at the camps from illness and starvation, fates that would not have befallen them had they not been arrested. These historians contend that, yes, many of the projects built under Stalin could have been built with free labor, but should many of the projects been built at all? This also caused more long-term damage to the labor market as slave labor became a narcotic that the economy uh, was addicted to, as free labor can never compete with slave labor. The camps also helped to feed the Russian mafia with recruits. Many of those arrested for minor crimes and were sent to the camps returned as repeat offenders with some more serious crimes. In the end, Stalin might have seen the whole process as killing two birds with one stone. He eliminated his enemies and created more slave labor, all at the same time, And by the late 1930s, as we will see, a new round of arrests and purges would feed the camps even new victims. The Great Terror was different from the repression of the Soviet Union's political enemies in the 1920s or the forced collectivization in the early 1930s. The terror ate the children of the very revolution and many of the people who had helped Stalin come to power. Mitvit uh, Bierman, the head of of the Gulag from 1932 to 1937, was himself arrested in 1938 as were many other high-ranking officials within the Gulag and the wider Soviet state. Biermann's successor only lasted one year before he too was shot in 1939. No one was safe in Soviet society after this point. Anyone could be arrested and sent to the camps, even NKVD officers and foreign diplomats, like the American diplomat Alexander Dolgun, who was arrested in 1948, on the Moscow, st- and in Moscow Street for being a spy and was not released until 1971. Many foreigners were arrested during this time. Some 25,000 Finnish Americans had moved to the Soviet Union in the early 1930s during the Depression for greater economic opportunity that they believed they would find in the Soviet Union. These Americans were subsequently arrested by the late 1930s and sent to the Gulag. Internal populations of Poles, Germans, Finns, Romanians, Balts, Greeks, Iranians, Koreans, Afghans, and Chinese were also arrested and deported to the camps. Many others were arrested for having worked overseas, traveled abroad, or having relatives overseas. In all, some 335,000 people were arrested from 1937 to 1938 for having foreign connections. The camps during this time became chaotic, disorganized, and frequently cruel, Many political prisoners who had been engaged in technical or engineering work due to their educational background were removed from those positions and forced into manual labor roles for fear of sabotage. Most camps became stricter and food rations were cut. Conditions were also worsened as the number of prisoners rose. At one timber camp at Sib, Sib Leg in Siberia, which had, was built to house 250 to 350 prisoners, had around 17,000 lacking barracks the prisoners built dugouts in the earth but even those were packed there were no food bowls or spoons and long lines for food as well dysentery became endemic and hundreds died throughout the camp system from 1937 to 1938 fatalities doubled prisoners were not not only died from starvation and overwork many were executed as well as execution quotas were set for the camps according to soviet records from august 1937 to november 1938 700,000 were executed. In some camps, the executions were random, but in others, camp bosses took the opportunity to get rid of troublemakers or the weak. Some prisoners fought back with knives and shanks killing their guards. After these events, camp guards would force the inmates to strip naked before they executed them. Nevertheless, some camps did remain orderly, and political prisoners were offered the possibility of redemption. Overall, though, due to all the chaos of the terror, the camps became even less efficient and even more expensive to operate. In 1936, before the terror, the camps generated 3.5 billion rubles. By 1937, it had fallen to 2 billion rubles. Stalin selected one of his favorite lieutenants, Leventia Beria, to head up the NKVD. He was intent on turning the gulag into a profitable system. Beria's immediate goal was to handle the food shortage in the camps, as many prisoners were starving, and by April 1938, the food situation started to improve slowly. The random executions also declined, although they were still carried out for those who refused to work. By 1939, the deaths in the camps had dropped by half. Beria also decreed that the prisoners waiting for transport to the Gulag or exile receive at least an hour a day of walking. He also ensured that the prisoners not being interrogated received eight hours of sleep and that those that were sick received medical treatment. In this way, inmates could arrive to the gulag in good health and ready for work. He also slowly brought back propaganda into the camps and incentives for workers which had been done away with during the terror. Reeducation was reintroduced, and by the 1940s, every camp on paper had a cultural education department with a cultural officer on site. They also showed films, put on political lectures, and political discussions were held. In larger camps, they produced newspapers for the guards and camp administrators. Wall newspapers were also erected for prisoners to read, since paper was still in shortage. Beria's changes had a big impact on the camps, and by 1940, they were beginning to generate some 4.5 billion rubles again. Beria also built a number of newer and larger camps, Camps which had originally contained a few huts and barbed wire had become vast industrial complexes, with some camps containing over 100,000 inmates. At one camp, Norlag, north of the Arctic Circle, prisoners constructed a large nickel mine, a processing plant, and a power plant along with the city of Norlisk, Uh, and by 1952, some 68,000 prisoners lived there. Beria also constructed a number of scientific camps, which eventually housed about 1,000 scientists. Beria personally combed the gulag and tracked down talented scientists and ordered them brought to his scientific camp outside of Moscow. Among his most important finds were Tupolev, the aircraft designer, and Sergei Korolev, the father of the Soviet rocket program. During World War II, Beria's scientific camps created 25 different new pieces of military technology. These were the best camps in the gulag system. The barracks were large and clean, and the inmates all had their own bedding, and special Dutch ovens even heated them. The camps went from being self-contained individual units of operation to hubs and spokes in a vast industrial complex. A large bureaucracy was established to monitor and centralize the control of the camps from Moscow. The center sent out orders regulating every aspect of camp life, from food rations to education, although camps did not always follow the directives of Moscow. The camps were never the clean, well-functioning industrial system that Beria had envisioned. Guards were corrupt, as were administrators and camp bosses. Prisoners formed their own informal hierarchies, which sometimes worked with the camp administrators and sometimes against them. Despite the deaths from execution and disease, the Gulag's population rose to 1.8 million by 1938, with another million people exiled. 1939 saw large numbers of Poles, Ukrainians, and Balts sent to the camps from the Soviet Union's conquests of the Baltic states and eastern, U- and eastern Poland. The Gulag also saw the construction of a number of military facilities and large railroad c- construction projects in northern Russia and the Far East. New oil wells were constructed in northern Russia, along with roads and aircraft plants. In addition, some 400,000 prisoners were assigned to the construction of some 251 airfields for the Soviet Air Force. When the Soviet Union was invaded in 1941, many of the Western camps were liberated by the Germans, and they set the inmates free. Other inmates were shipped east before the Germans could arrive. 420,000 prisoners were given early release. Many political prisoners were executed if they, couldn't, if there wasn't, they weren't able to make arrangements for their transport further east. Many of the trains traveling east, though, were attacked by the Luftwaffe, and inmates were either killed or escaped in the chaos. In all, the NKVD evacuated some 750,000 prisoners from 27 camps and 210 labor colonies. Another 140,000 prisoners were evacuated from 272 prisons. During World War II in 1942 and 1943, as a result of the POWs, the Gulag's population hovered around 4 million. 157,000 inmates who had been arrested for minor crimes were released for military service the camps also became an important factor in wartime production. For those who stayed in the camps, life grew incredibly harsh. Food rations were cut, inmates worked 16-hour days, and the death rate grew. In all, between 1941 and 1945, some 1 million inmates died, with a high portion of that were sick and exhausted. With the gulag population falling to 1.4 million in 1945, These losses were offset, though, with the arrests of domestic minority populations like Germans, Finns, Chechens, and Romanians, which added some 400,000 prisoners. More workers were quickly replaced, though, through prisoners of war and nationalities of the recently conquered regions. 2,388,000 Germans were captured, along with another 1,097,000 other Italian and or minor Axis power soldiers. Some 600,000 Japanese POWs were sent to the Gulag in the closing stages of the war, one of 10 of whom would die in the camps. By the end of the war, the Soviets had 4 million POWs, not including thousands of other nationalities that were captured in the drive across Eastern Europe and Northern China. Stalin also captured 150,000 Soviet citizens that had collaborated with the Germans and thousands of whites who had resettled in Eastern Europe after the Russian Civil War. At Yalta, the Allies agreed that any Soviet or former Russian citizen, no matter what the circumstances, should be returned to the Soviet Union. The British Army, even at one point, even forced the families of 20,000 former Cossacks who lived in Austria onto trains to be sent to the Gulag. Many of the, the Cossacks, knowing their fate in the Soviet Union, threw themselves and their children off bridges. One man even killed his family and then shot himself. After the war, the Gulag saw a return to large mining and infrastructure projects. Military industrial facilities, along with the atomic bomb project, consumed a great deal of labor as well. 1948 saw a mass arrest of Jews and their introductions to the camps in large numbers, and the Gulag began to grow once again as it reached its peak in 1952. In 1953, the Gulag cost about 105 billion rubles to operate and generated about 13.3 billion rubles. Beria had already come to the conclusion that the camps could not be made profitable and that incentivized workers were far more productive, but Stalin couldn't be convinced to bring the camps to an end. In 1952, 26% of the workers did not meet their quotas. Beria had already tried to introduce some incentives to help camp productivity, By the introducing of workday credits in 1950, he also introduced wages and had more inmates classified as unguarded workers. Machinery as well was making the need for additional inmates superfluous as mechanized timber haulage was only 23% in 1939, but had risen to 53% by 1950. The Gulag staff was another set of issues that faced Beria during his leadership at the NKVD. Many guards were not the most professional. They would drink with, their, with the inmates and have sex with them. Many had been former prisoners themselves. Throughout the 1930s, it wasn't unusual for inmates to graduate to guards, whereas many convicts had once been guards themselves. Guards were arrested for regularly for desertion, drinking, stealing, losing their rifles, and for mistreating prisoners. Within the NKVD, work in the Gulag was seen as a career exile. The gulag had a high suicide rate for camp guards and NKVD officers. The gulag was a last resort for disgraced secret police officers. Once sent to the gulag, agents were very rarely allowed to transfer to another branch of the NKVD. As a sign of their different status, they wore different uniforms with a different rank, ranking system. Many NKVD officers were sent to the gulag had Jewish, Polish, or Baltic nationality. Others were simply slow, incompetent, or drunkards. Of the 11 men who had headed the Gulag Department between 1930 and 1960, only five had higher education, while three had only a primary education. Of those who did hold the job, only two lasted longer than five years. Of the administrators who worked in the camps, the vast majority came from peasant backgrounds, with very few having a primary education. Very few, of of course, had in fact completed the fifth grade. Below the NKVD officers and camp administrators were the camp guards. According to one NKVD official, they were composed not of the second but fourth class people, the very dregs of society. They were even less educated than the camp administrators. Many of the guards struggled to keep their rifles clean and in good working condition. Most Soviet institutions suffered from a lack of educated personnel, and the gulags suffered particularly badly. The NKVD struggled to find the personnel to man the camps, and even by 1947 was still 40,000 guards short of their goal. The gulag was not an attractive job to most Soviet citizens, especially those with an education. The camps were distant with harsh weather conditions, and at times the guards and camp administrators were just as hungry as the inmates. Beria tried to rectify these issues by paying guards higher rates the farther they were away from Moscow. They were even given extended vacations. Vacation resorts were especially built for the camp officials on the Black Sea and Sochi. They were also open schools in the Gulag for Gulag staff to improve their education and rise up the ranks. Many Soviet citizens were attracted to this offer, especially those coming home from the war with few employment opportunities in the market. The Soviets also repurposed many of the returning Soviet POWs, that they didn't arrest after the war into prison guards to fill the gap. Nevertheless, the Gulag struggled to find the personnel to run the camps effectively. I want to take a quick moment here to make a couple of quick announcements about the show. We're going to start providing commercial-free episodes to our Patreon-supporting fans. So if you want to become a supporter and a monthly contributor, check out our website at com. One word. Any denotion amount is appreciated, But we prefer if you pledge at least at the $5 level, if you can. I also want to thank those who have supported the show via sending us links to sources and books. I really appreciate your support as it helps me to create episodes from the content perspective. To help facilitate this process, every few months I will be listing our upcoming episodes on social media. So if you have any sources you want to send my way, I can incorporate that information into future episodes. So if you want to follow us on Facebook uh, or Twitter, check us out uh, again at the website at www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com, one word. As always, I want to thank our contributors again for your donations for helping to keep this show going. Now back to the show. People's experience in the Gulag varied greatly. Some camps were better than others, and a lot depended on the camp's management. But I will try and give you an approximate view of what an average experience in the gulag might have looked like at the height of the gulag in the late 1940s. The reasons for arrest were many and varied, as we have seen. You could be arrested for having a foreign pen pal or having a German parent. The actual arrest methods varied as well, as some were taken by complete surprise at work or on the street. Others waited as slowly all their friends and relatives were arrested. The KGB deliberately changed up their tactics so that their su- suspects had little warning of their pending arrest. The most common arrest, and the one preferred by the KGB, was the one that took place in the middle of the night, the dreaded knock on the door. One Soviet joke goes that Ivan and his wife Natasha were frightened when they heard an unexpected knock at the door, but were quite relieved when they were discovered it was just the neighbor telling them that the building was on fire. An old Soviet proverb said that only thieves, prostitutes, and the NKVD worked at night. Once you were arrested, the NKVD agents would tell you to pack your enough goods and warm clothing to last for three years. In the 1930s, agents would tell people they were just going downtown for a conversation, but thousands died as a result of lacking adequate clothing as they were shipped to the Arctic Circle or Siberia, so the policy was changed in 1946. From there, prisoners were processed, photographed, and fingerprinted, and there even before you were at your trial, you were told where you would be shipped off to. Then, like in an American prison, you were deprived of belts, shoelaces, and anything that you might use to commit suicide. This was followed by a body search and then you were escorted escorted to a cell. Later you'd be taken out to be interrogated until you typically confess to a crime, although at times times, confessions weren't necessary to find you guilty. Interrogations, like everything, varied. Some were brutal and harsh and long. Others were short and orderly. Soviet prison, as you could imagine, was a pretty harsh place by Western standards, but similar to what you might find in developing uh, countries today and at the time. Prison solidarity was really strong, though, but less so in the camps. After a stay in prison, trains transferred prisoners typically for a period of a couple of weeks or maybe some months to a camp. The train rides could be very vary as well from the standard passenger carriage ride to riding a boxcar packed with other people. Upon arrival at the camp, the first thing you would typically see was the main gate with a slogan like quote, labor in the USSR is a matter of honesty, glory, valor, and heroism, or with work, just work, I will pay my debt to the fatherland close quote. following account, men and women were taken to the showers where their entire bodies were shaven. It was assumed often correctly that prisoners would be infested with lice when they arrived from Soviet prison for women inmates. The experience was even more humiliating as they were often stripped and watched by male guards after they were washed and shaved. Inmates were returned their clothes from the cleaners. In some camps, they were issued new uniforms, but it varied from camp to camp. Those unlucky enough to not have clothing or forced to wear uniforms were typically issued old, ripped, ill-fitting uniforms. Many of the prisoners spent their first few hours in the camps trading clothes in an attempt to find uniforms that fit them. Many inmates, especially women, modified their uniforms, sewing up holes and making pockets. Women in general benefited from being able to sew and quilt as they could use these skills in exchange for extra bread rations or favors. Weak and ill prisoners were no longer weeded out as they had been uh, in the early 1930s. Rather, they were put into quarantine, ensuring any disease they might have wouldn't spread, and they would be fattened up to recover and then to be put to work. Prisoners' days typically started with forming into prisoner brigades for morning count, and from there they would be marched off to work. If the march was far, they would be accompanied by dogs and guards, and when the day ended, the prisoners were formed back into brigades and marched back to the camp, ate supper, and were counted yet again. In the 1930s, inmates worked 14- to 16-hour days, and many prisoners were worked to death during the war. After the war, the days were scaled back. Moscow also mandated that prisoners have so many days off, but again, this was often usurped by camp officials that would assign workers work projects in the camp during their vacations. Prisoners were assigned to work on two, two criteria, the nature of their crime and their medical condition. Those who were assigned to have physical labor ate the best food, but those in light work didn't starve either. Life and work in the camps, again, I must stress, vary greatly across the Soviet Union. Life in the mass industrial camps in the far north was different from life in the agricultural camps in the far south. Liberal bosses ran many camps, whereas sadists ran others. Prisoners with light sentences typically worked one profession over the course of their internment. Prisoners with longer sentences held a variety of jobs, changing work frequently as their luck rose and fell. In most camps, armed guards observed the prisoners from high wooden watchtowers. Sometimes dogs also circled the camp, which were trained to bark and attack prisoners, especially escapees. All the camp fences were lined with a 15-foot no-man's land. Most of the time, this area was marked with a barbed wire fence and sign that read the area was forbidden or a death zone as guards were permitted to shoot anyone who crossed the line. Some prisoners were classified unguarded and were allowed to leave the camp unsupervised and to go into town and run errands for the guards and camp administrators. Some were even allowed to rent apartments outside of the camps. Moscow even reprimanded one camp for having some 1,763 unguarded prisoners in their camp, a figure too large in Moscow's eyes. For prisoners in the camps, most barracks were long rectangular wooden buildings with unplastered floors filled with row after row of poorly made bunk beds. Some barracks had crude tables and benches, others did not. Moscow dictated that all prisoners had their own place to sleep and their own bedding. Nevertheless, most prisoners had either crude or no bedding at all. Moscow also directed that barracks should have wooden floors, but even by the 1950s, many barracks still contained dirt floors. Heating and light were primitive, but again varied from camp to camp. Many prisoners lived in a virtual darkness, whereas others had electric lights that were on all hours of the day, making it difficult to sleep. Camps for coal mines had plenty of heat in the winter, but others froze to their beds during the winter. The barracks were looked after by old women who were no longer capable of work. The barracks are said to have often smelled terrible as a result of dirty and mildew-covered clothing drying along the edge of the bunks. In punishment camps where the windows were barred and the prisoners locked in at night, the smell was said to be unbearable. Toilets were outhouses outside the barracks some distance away and a serious hardship when the temperature reached 30 or 40 below. Dirt, crowding, and poor hygiene often led to plagues of bedbugs and lice. Baths were supposed to be mandatory every 10 days and all clothing was supposed to be boiled with small amounts of soap regularly distributed. Nevertheless, like many things, the camps often ignored or rarely enforced camp hygiene. But camp commanders and medical staff could be held criminally negligent, like at Timgleg in 1937 when typhus broke out and the deputy of the camp medical department was arrested. Some camps were moderately clean. Some workers and work sites had their own showers. Soviet officials at least went through the motions of cleaning the prisoners despite the lack of soap and water versus most POW camps of the period, which didn't even attempt this. In larger camps where factories ran 24 hours a day and prisoners worked in three shifts, it was hard to get enough sleep. In some barracks, radio propaganda was played 24 hours a day. Fights over sleep between inmates could turn violent and lead to murder. Despite the end of the terror and Beria's more systematic approach to the gulag, the system was still overcrowded. Who slept where was a combination of camp politics and decisions made by camp management. Space and pi- privacy were at some premium, and only high-ranking prisoners like brigade leaders slept in smaller barracks with less people. Certain jobs, like carpenter or a camp mechanic, brought with them the luxury of sleeping in the machine shop. In almost every camp as well, convict doctors could sleep separately, a reflection of their status. Another sought-after job was working in the bathhouse with the proximity to clean water and soap. They had the ability to deny people baths or sneak them in ahead of schedule access that could be traded for other goods or favors. Food in the camps was always in short supply, and prisoners were always hungry. Watery soup with a piece of small, black, rock-hard bread was typically served twice a day. It was often made from spoiled cabbage and potatoes, sometimes with a little pig fat or fish head. In more desperate times, dog meat would be substituted. As a result, most prisoners were uh, vitamin deficient even when they were not starving. An absence of vitamin tablets, they were forced uh, to drink a foul-tasting brew made out of pine needles. Prisoners also faced the struggle of eating outdoors in long lines, in some places 700 men to a line. Sometimes their soup would freeze before they could finish it. Cutlery and crockery were lacking as well. Prisoners would often share spoons and bowls, finishing it and then giving it to those waiting in line. Owning a bowl was a very prized possession Being served early meant you received more of the meat and fat, which tended to rise to the top of the cauldrons when cooking. Moscow was aware of these shortages, but struggled to correct the issue. Some camps received the wrong shipments, others received goods, but corrupt guards or camp administrators sold the goods and or food for their own profit. What wasn't stolen by them was stolen by convicts working in the kitchens, another sought-after job in the camps for obvious reasons. One thing which was culturally wasn't admissible to steal was bread, and anyone caught stealing another one's person's bread was often beaten to death by the other inmates. Within the camps, prisoners were allowed free movement when they were not working, be sleeping, or being counted, a stark contrast to Soviet prisons. There were plenty of guards walking around, and prisoners were supervised from towers, so there was very little danger either from other prisoners. However, at night, the guards disappeared, and the camps became much more dangerous. If their lives were in danger, sometimes they could appeal to the camp guards to save them. On one occasion, a woman complained to a guard that a male inmate planned to rape her, so he allowed her to sleep in the isolation cell at night. However, on another occasion, when a guard saw a woman being gang-raped, he yelled down at the attackers that they were brutes, but didn't attempt to stop them. And brawls between political prisoners and professional criminals occurred frequently. Until the late 1940s, the thieves-in-law, or the Russian mafia, ruled the camps. They were professional criminals and lived by their own set of rules and customs, which predated the Soviet Union and outlived it. The thieves-in-law traced their roots back to Tsarist times, and they controlled petty crime. With the outbreak of the Revolution and Civil War, hundreds of thousands of orphans or street children were created, and these children created a new generation of organized crime in Russia as the boys became men. The Russian mafia bullied the political and common criminals. The highest ranking mafia members didn't even work. They controlled who slept where. They took the best beds and beat anyone who objected. They often abused the political criminals and those who had broken the thieves code. The late 1940s, however, saw a huge influx of nationalities like Ukrainians, Estonians, Japanese, and Poles who managed to overpower the mafia and take control of other camps. Among the Russians, there were distinctions too. Many continued to still believe in the Soviet Union despite their arrest and continued to profess loyalty to the regime. They believed their arrest to be a misfortune and not a reflection of the Soviet state. Others believed themselves to be still Marxist-Leninist, but believed that the Soviet Union had become corrupt under Stalin. Others, such as Russian Protestant sects and the Russian Catholics, were persecuted because of their faith. In principle, men and women were supposed to be housed separately, and in many camps this was the case. In some camps, inmates never saw the opposite sex for years. But many other camps saw men and women intermixed. Most camp commanders didn't want women, and relatively speaking, the gulag female population remained low. In 1942, they only represented about 13%. By 1945, as a result of men leaving the camps to join the Red Army, their numbers grew to 30%. But by 1952, the number had fallen back to 17%. In those camps where women and men intermixed, some were raped. They were frequently propositioned, and many exchanged sex for easier work, food, or goods. The Russian mafia especially mistreated women as they perceived them to be very of very little value, deserving of little respect. Homosexuality, it seems, to have been just as brutal, although we lack sources on the subject given its taboo nature at the time. We do know that some criminal bosses had young homosexual men in their entourage they referred to as their camp wives. Passive homosexuals were ostracized from the rest of the camp society and often ate at separate tables and did not speak to other men. Lesbianism was more open in the camps, and they divided themselves into two, the mares and the more masculine husbands. The husbands could be quite brutal to the mares and treated them as slaves. Lesbians raping uh, other women seems to have been an issue as well. Sexual rape was unfortunately the norm. Women who had camp husbands were usually left alone by other men, though. Sometimes camp marriages were genuine and for love. Just like today, towards the end of the gulag, many inmates wrote love letters to those located outside of prison. Naturally, with rape, prostitution, and consensual sex comes babies. Many children were, were not born in the camps, though, but were arrested as small children with their mothers there were also women who became deliberately pregnant to get lighter work and to receive slightly better food. The Gulag administration in Moscow seemed to be ambivalent about if women had children or abortions, sometimes permitting abortions and sometimes giving them extended sentences for having abortions. We don't know how frequent or how many abortions took place as the Soviets didn't keep records on the subject. A 1949 report noted desperately That of the 503,000 women in the Gulag, 9,300 were pregnant, while another 23,790 had small children, and subsequently the Soviets released 70,000 women. The children that did live in the camps were often neglected, and women were only allowed to nurse their children every four hours for 15 minutes before they had to return to work, meaning that many children went hungry. Given the lack of food and the unsanitary conditions, infant death rates were high. When children turned two, they were taken away from the camps and sent to orphanages. Some mothers welcomed this. Uh, Some fought back, knowing that once they entered the Soviet adoption system, their names would often be changed and it would be difficult to track them down. Indeed, thousands of those who were born in the camps never located their parents, and many parents were never able to locate their children. Many children found themselves in the camps as a 1935 law made it possible to to charge 12-year-olds as adults. These children were arrested and transported to the camps as if they were adults, except they were to be transported separately and not shot if they attempted to escape. Children were also interrogated like adults and accused of outrageous crimes like organizing anarchist cavalry. In 1939, NKVD officers were arrested for 160 false confessions from 12 to 14-year-olds. So you might be asking yourself, why not escape? Beyond the guards, watchtowers, dogs... There was the issue of being in such a remote location, often in difficult conditions, oftentimes being hundreds of miles from civilization. Beyond this, most local villagers would turn you in to the authorities as they feared that it would, what would happen to them and their families if it was discovered that they helped you run away. They were also motivated by rewards of money, and they w- were a number of professional bounty hunters. But some escapees did succeed. Two former white guards escaped from a working party in 1935 and walked 35 days to the Finnish border to escape. In 1947, some 10,440 attempted escapes were made from the Gulag, of whom 2,849 were captured, a small percentage, though, of the millions in the system. With the death of Stalin in 1953, large construction projects were immediately canceled, A broad amnesty was issued, which released a million people. Beria ended the persecution of the Jews. By 1954, most of the Soviet leadership agreed that the camps were a drain on the state. The eight-hour working day was brought back, and they made it easier for early release. Prisoners were allowed to write letters and receive packages. More importantly, the justice and morality of the whole Stalinist era was quietly being questioned by many in Soviet leadership. In February 1956, Khrushchev delivered his secret speech denouncing Stalin, and by 1957, some 617,000 prisoners were released, and mechanisms were put in place to speed up the process of shutting down the camps. Millions of people returned home, some for the first time in decades. The violence and torture of the Stalinist era had been mostly hidden from Soviet society, and now it was in the open, with camp survivors operating in society. The Soviet prison system remained harsh by Western standards for decades to come, but never again approached the scale and scope of the Gulag. The Soviet Union abandoned mass incarceration and mass slave labor as an integral part of the Soviet society. The KGB would never again control such a large swath of the economy. Even the Lubyanka, created to be a prison, it was, it had its last inmate being Gary Powers, the American U-2 pilot who was shot down in 1960. Political prisoners did still exist in the Soviet Union, but very rarely did they arrest people for minor reasons, as in Stalin's time. These prisoners were truly opposed to the regime and were political dissidents or religious opposition figures. By the 1970s, there were no more than 10,000 political prisoners, with no more than a few thousand arrests a year. Only in 1987 did Gorbachev himself, the grandson of a Gulag prisoner, begin to dissolve the Soviet Union's political camps altogether. I want to thank you for listening to episode 34, Soviet Gulag. Make sure you tune in for our next episode, October the 1st, which has been heavily requested, the early Cold War in the Middle East. If you enjoyed this show or any of our shows, please feel free to share it on social media or with a friend. If you don't have a lot of friends in the history, please help us by giving us a positive review on iTunes or the platform of your choice. If you want to email us questions, uh, show ideas, or follow us on social media for more Cold War content and upcoming episodes, again, check out the website. As always, if you would like to support the show financially, go to the website at www.historythecoldwarpodcast.com. One word, a word. Any donation size is appreciated. If you can, we ask that you become a monthly supporter to the show at the $5 level through Patreon. Again, I want to thank those who have supported the show via sending links to sources and books. I really appreciate your support uh, as it helps to create episodes uh, from the content perspective. To help facilitate this, every few months I will be listing our upcoming episodes on social media. So if you have any sources you want to send my way, I can try to incorporate the the information into future episodes. So if you want to follow us on Facebook or Twitter – Check us out again on the website at www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com, one word. Well there, if you haven't already done so, please feel free to fill out our survey so that you can help us to bring you a better show.
0: annual membership fee applies participating locations only see club for details at planet fitness you can get down with your judgment free self join for only one dollar down ten dollars a month no commitment now through january 15th planet fitness has cardio weights and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of new year's champagne only one dollar down ten dollars a month no commitment now through january 15th join in club or online at planetfitness.com planet fitness the judgment free zone Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations.
1: Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details.